And if you saw how skinny my arms in that picture, you know how much help we need moving. So feel free. No, I think we'll be okay. Make Mark Vosper do all the heavy lifting. Right, Mark? Right. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the book of 1 John. I hope it's been challenging to you. Um, but before we jump in, maybe you could help me. I want you to think about the most exciting worship service you've ever been to. Think about it. Maybe it was at a camp. Uh, maybe it was at another church you had. Maybe it was here, hopefully, at this church. Think about the most exciting worship experience. What made it so exciting? Uh, I'd like to describe one for you, see if you can relate. Uh, this worship experience, uh, the people just going in to the building are just extremely pumped up, like they're excited to be there. And although there are like seats, uh, not everyone sits down. In fact, most of them don't sit down. There's singing that goes on. Uh, I remember some singing some lyrics like this. To, to you we give glory, standing in majesty. We sing our love to you. I mean, we're using lyrics like that, singing uh, together. Uh, just everybody's amped up and involved and focused on what's going on there. Uh, people are so amped, even a guy, you know, a bunch of guys take their shirts off and, uh, at this worship experience, and it's just crazy. And they write the letters USC on their chest. Um, I'm talking about a USC football game. University of Spoiled Children, right? That, that university. Yeah? The spoiled brats, we'll call them. But if you think about it, a football game is very similar to a worship service. People go there and there's an excitement and there's camaraderie and there's even a format. There's like a liturgy, like we would say. There's a liturgy to what they do. There's songs. I mean, that was, I was quoting from their alma mater song, to, to thy glory we sing, we stand in majesty. I mean, that's, it sounds like worship lyrics to a worship song. They cheer for what's going on there. There's there's pandemonium going on in the, in the audience. People at a football game are worshiping. You, when you devote yourself to a hobby, you're in a sense worshiping. And this is not a knock on watching sports because I watch sports and I like them. And this is not a, a knock at going and having different hobbies like that. But people can take those things and they can make them the ultimate thing. And that's what makes them idols. If you read our section tonight, you might think it's kind of weird. John has been talking in 18, 19, and 20 about uh, things he's been talking about most of the letter, becoming a child of God, what that means, what the devil can do, what the devil can't do, all these things that he's been talking about the whole letter. And then he ends the letter almost abruptly saying, little children, guard yourself from idols. Why would he say that? Isn't that just an Old Testament thing, John? Why are you bringing that up now? But that is not just an Old Testament thing. That is a reality that every human has faced since they were created. Because to be human is to be a worshiper. You can just write down Romans chapter 1 if you need a defense of that. Romans 1, 18 to I think the end of the chapter, which is 32 or 33. Um, Paul says, we are created to worship and you will either worship creatures or you will worship the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Every human being's a worshiper, so everyone's going to find something to devote themselves to. Everyone's going to find something that drives them. Everyone's going to find something, even though they can't identify it all the time, everyone will find something and they will place it the primacy of their life. And that's why John tells us that we need to watch out for the idols in our own lives. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5, 
verses 18 to 21, and we're going to figure out how we can destroy these idols in our lives. 1 John chapter 5. While you're turning there, I didn't know. USC used to be called the USC Methodist. Is that true? Fighting Methodist? <laughs> I say we go back to that. Why did we lose it? Yeah. Forget the Trojans, the Fighting Methodists. Bunch of weirdos, if you ask me. 1 John 5, 18. <laughs> fighting Methodists? Oh, come on. I, uh, we're the Fighting Baptists. Uh, yeah, just weird. 1 John 5, 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So why is John talking like this? And I think if we take a look at these verses, we can get a great sense of what the, a, a very important New Testament theme and a biblical theme. That God is in control of all things. God is in control of our lives. God protects us. He guides us. But that does not negate us from having responsibilities of following hard after him. I mean, in fact, in the English translation, it's two different words in the Greek. But if you notice verse 18, God protects him. God protects the, the, the Christian. But then verse 21, we need to protect ourselves from idols is what we need to do. So there is God who is ultimately going to do this work and he will not fail, but that doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility ourselves to say no to those things. In fact, take a look at verse 18. Notice this. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And that's been a major theme. You go back to chapter 3, that there is no habitual sin that will be in the life of a believer. There cannot be that continued pattern and not develop a hatred towards that sin and not develop a plan to get rid of that sin. There can be no association ongoing with sin with the life of someone who's been born of God. But again, that key phrase, been born of God, perfect passive, something done in the past tense, not done by the person, but they have been acted upon, okay? Wesley, our third born, did not do anything to be born. He was passive in that. And we are passive in our spiritual verse as well. That's what verse 18 is stating. But notice this, and it says, um, and he who was born of God protects him. It might be a little bit of a confusing phrase. He's not talking about the Christian, he who was born of God. I think he's referring to Christ there, who was born of God, maybe even highlighting the humanity and the divinity of Christ, who was born of God. You think back to how Christ came about. He was born by a woman, but the Holy Spirit was the one who uh, caused uh, Mary to become pregnant. So he was born of God at a certain time, and that Christ protects the Christian, as the rest of that says, and the evil one does not touch him, okay? So with all this going on, we could know that as Christians, we will not have a continuing pattern of sin, that no one is able to touch us because Christ protects us, and Satan really has no control over us. So you can think about it this way. Sin no longer compels our actions. It can only ever entice us. So our job now is to fight the enticement that comes because we are not controlled by sin anymore. Or how Paul states it in Romans 6, therefore sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Okay? 
This is the promise of God to always protect us, to always cover us, to always guard us. But verse 21 says that doesn't mean that we can sit back and be passive and not watch out for idols that would come and steal worship from God. And this is the dichotomy that goes all throughout the Bible. God is not dependent upon you doing good works in order to finish your salvation. You've got to remember that. It is never God depending on you, you know, starting a little bit with grace, giving you a little bit of grace, and then depending on you to finish that out so he can save you. That would be a works-based salvation. God is not dependent upon your good works in order to save you, but that does not mean he doesn't expect you to work after he saves you because there is a clear expectation that you do need to do work. You are his child. Here's how Paul states it in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Because it is both God to will and work inside of you. So you're not going to take any of the credit of it. It's not in and you of your own strength doing it, but there still is work that you must be doing. And this is the dichotomy that we see here. God will protect us. We know we will never ultimately give up to an idol. We will never stop worshiping God and, and worship somewhere else because we've been sealed by God, protected by God. We will be there, but we have a responsibility, and that's what we want to talk about tonight. It is not by any, you know, uh, by any other reason that John just threw verse 21 in there. He didn't just say, oh yeah, and by the way, uh, don't follow idols. This is a summary, I think you could say, of all that he said. With the three tests that we've had, you've got to have the right beliefs, the right actions, and the right love. That's what 1 John is always talking about. If you don't have the right beliefs, you have an idol that you're worshiping. If you have the right beliefs, but you don't follow the commands with your life, you have a different God that you're worshiping. Or if you have the right beliefs and you keep the rules, but you don't love other people or love God, you have a different God that you're worshiping, and we need to watch out for idols. So, number one, let's get it down this way. Understand the components of true worship. Okay? Understand the components of true worship. Understand the components of worship. I said we're all worshipers. Just like somebody who goes to a football game is a worshiper, just like somebody who devotes themselves to a hobby, um, just like someone who has a child that they invest themselves into too much has, is a worshiper. They're, everybody's worshiping something. So we've got to identify the components. When we identify the components, we can realize if our worship is directing us towards God or if it's being redirected towards something else because that's what an idol is designed to do. Redirect, steal, refocus worship that should go to God and God alone, and it diverts the attention that should go to God. So you have three different points underneath this one. I'm going to give you three truths about worship that will help you identify what you're worshiping, okay? First of all, worship is transformational, okay? Write that down. Worship is transformational. What do I mean by that? When we worship something, you devote yourself to it. It consumes you. And what you are consumed with, it will conform you into its own image. So when I spend time and energy and focus and devotion towards something, I will begin to look like that thing. This is, in essence, what peer pressure is. I crave worship the attention of a crowd of people. And because they do a certain thing or dress a certain way or act a certain way, I will now change my actions or I will change my dress or I will change whatever it is to be accepted by them. I will be transformed to look like those people. That's what worship will do. 
So side note, parents, when we begin to talk to our kids about peer pressure, it's not just something that we tell them bad kids give into peer pressure, good kids don't. It's ultimately something of worship. You want to know why you want to be like those kids? Because that's the most important thing to you. And if that becomes the most important thing to you, that drives everything you do. You do that because you're human. That can only be directed towards God. And now we have a conversation with our kids about what it means to be a Christian, being devoted to God. But worship is transformational. Let me just read you some verses. Write them down, okay? Psalm 135, 18. Psalm 135, 18. There's a number of psalms that say this, but Psalm 135 is representative, giving a list of idols and what they are. They're made by human hands, but verse 18 says this, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them, okay? That is the pattern of idolatry. I set up an idol, and I worship it, and I devote it, and I give attention to it. I'm going to start to be conformed to that image, okay? Write down Jeremiah 2, verse 5. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5. Listen to how the prophet says it here. Jeremiah 2, 5. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me when they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? talking about the idols and the the bad desires that the children of Israel began to chase. And those were worthless idols and worthless desires. And in searching and devoting and focusing on something that's worthless, they became worthless in and of themselves. One other one, 2 Kings 17, verse 15 and 16. 2 Kings, verse 17 and verse... 16, 2 Kings 17, 15, and 16. They despised his statutes, talking about God and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols, and notice this, and became false themselves. They went after, they chased after these things, and they were transformed into whatever image they started to worship. So, what you magnify in your life, you will begin to mimic. What you exalt in your life, you will begin to edify, you will begin to emulate, and what you idolize, you will imitate. All of these different things, when we devote ourselves to worship, we will become like them. It's the old adage that Nike was very smart to come up with. You will be like Mike if you dress this way, buy these shoes, drink this drink. You will be like this person that you find so much worth in, and that's what worship is all about. It's transformational. Secondly, it's intentional, okay? Worship is a choice. You make deliberate choices to go after things. Worship is intentional. So don't think that you are passive in this. Don't think that you get off the hook, that you're not culpable or at fault for the things that you worship. God designed you and created you so that you would worship him, and when you choose to worship something else, that's called sin, and it's very intentional that you make that choice. That's why twice in the Old Testament, if you think of Elijah, okay, when he's facing off against the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings, I think it's 18, he says this great phrase, how long will you limp between two options? If God is God, go after him. If Baal is God, then you need to serve him, and it it comes down to a choice. 
You can't limp back and forth between the two. You will worship one or worship the other. Or the famous one that we'll be studying in men's Bible study in a couple weeks, Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve or worship. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is a choice. And so dads in this room, husbands in this room, you have a choice with your family. What are you worshiping? What is the focus? What, what gets the ultimate priority in your family? You're going to be held accountable for that. It's intentional when we do this. Thirdly, worship is always doctrinal. And you've got to remember this. It's always doctrinal. Worship is doctrinal. What do I mean by that? True worship is always based on teaching. Marketing is, is the teaching of the culture trying to get you to buy something. And it tells you you need this. And you make choices based off of those, that marketing teaching. This will make you happy. This will make you better. This will make life easier. That's a teaching that's coming at you. And if you begin to fall into that, oh yeah, that will make my life easier. I will be happier if I do that. If I get this, if I get that. That is teaching that is coming in and you are being taught that and you are making a worshipful choice based on that. Oh, happiness is the most important thing and this thing will make me happy. So now I need to go out and I need to get it. See, worship is always based on doctrine. Right, but write down Habakkuk 2, 18. And listen to this. Habakkuk 2, 18. It says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, notice this phrase, a teacher of lies. It's what an idol is. It will teach you lies. This will satisfy you. This will make life better. This is what you need. You cannot live without this. And that is the lie that idols are teaching. And I think you can summarize these into two broad lies. There will be little you know, uh, avenues here and there, different aspects, but I think you can summarize it into two broad aspects of the lie that an idol is going to teach you. It will teach you, number one, that true joy can be found outside of Christ. That's what it will teach you. I promise you that if you follow this line of thought, if you follow this teaching, if you follow this product, you will find true joy that you are searching for, okay? That is the majority of what we face here in Orange County. There's just so much available to us. Everything is trying to steal your attention and promise joy and satisfaction. There is pockets of this, and I don't think the second one is as um, prevalent here, but that doesn't mean it's not a problem. First lie is you can find true joy outside of Christ. The second one is you can find true justification without Christ. This is where religious behavior comes in as an idol. That if I do this, God will accept me. That I can be good enough in order for me to get into the presence of God. So idolatry will try to trip us up in one of these two ways, but ultimately they're both stealing worship from God, and that's a lie that idolatry gives us. So when we begin to realize that Whatever I'm becoming conformed to, that is what I'm worshiping. Take a look at your life. What are you conforming into? What are you being molded into? What are you being sculpted into? Do you look like just everybody else around you? Unsaved people who have, you know, do you have the same values, the same goals, everything? Do you just look similar to them? Is there nothing distinct about you? You call yourself a worshiper of Christ, meaning you should be transformed to become more like him. And that's the essence of the Christian life. Now you understand better the, the passages in the New Testament that talk about imitating Christ, mimic Christ, look like Christ because you should be worshiping Christ. You know, what intentional choices are you making? When you find out the intentional choices, you're going to find out what you're worshiping and finally what you believe. 
what you place your hopes in, the doctrine that you think, you're going to find out what you are worshiping. So we need to take John's admonition here and keep ourselves from idols. So number two, let's get it down this way. Let's avoid worshiping the undeserving. There are so many things that are good that God gives us that will provide joy, but not the ultimate satisfaction that we are looking for. There's so many of those things that, that take the primacy, that take the supremacy that God deserves alone, and we've got to avoid those because they are not worthy of worship. The old English way to say it was worth-ship, I think. You ascribe worth to whatever you are praising, whatever you are honoring. If I could just maybe give you some categories today of things that families use, I think as I see broadly around the culture around us, maybe some of these will hit home with you. Academics, okay? Inside your family can become a huge idol. I am all for having your kids study. I love to read. I love to study. I love those things. It is not bad in and of itself, but it does become an ultimate thing for some families. Some families make GPAs the ultimate thing, and that if you get a good GPA, no matter how you do it, no matter if you don't go to church or you don't hang out with friends or you don't serve, whatever it is, if you've got that good thing, then that's okay because that's the ultimate thing to us. You've got to watch out for that. Some, though, it's, it's sports. And I, I mean, I had this temptation growing up too. I think I played in three different sports in high school. It consumes you. You devote yourself to it. You notice you, you and your teammates, you dress similar. You talk similar. It conforms you into something because you devote so much time to it. And then you get a good response from it and it makes you feel good. It can so quickly in your family become an area of worship. We've got to avoid worshiping it. It is not deserving of the ultimate spot. Three, leisure. Okay, and there's so many different categories underneath this. Vacations, hobbies, entertainment, whatever you want to put. Uh, but leisure just becomes the ultimate thing. I work hard during the week so that at the weekend, I deserve to rest. I do. I deserve it. And this is mine. And I deserve this amount of vacation. And I deserve this. And we have to go to these various spots. Okay, in and of themselves, again, God wants us to rest, designed us to rest. Not a bad thing. But if it's the ultimate thing, and it's driven by uh, your worship of it, then it's a bad thing. How about uh, image or status? What people think about you? You've got to have this much money, this big a house, this type of car, this type of clothing. Again, all things in and of themselves that are not bad. But again, I think we gave this analogy earlier in the year. Which, which one is it? Are these things trophies that you wave around or tools that you use to glorify God? That will be the difference in the idolatry. Will you use all of these things that we've listed? And you could put a whole bunch more. That, that list is by no means exhaustive. Will you put all those things and will you say, this is the ultimate thing that gives me value? Or will you say, my value is found in God. I want to use this now to glorify him. That's the right response to these things. You cannot worship those things. They are undeserving of worship, okay? So then what is, how do, how do we handle this? What do we do? Okay, number three, deliberately choose true worship and you need to be able to point to things in your life that you deliberately do like we talked about worship is intentional i intentionally do this so that god gets the glory god gets the credit god is glorified because i do this and that should be all areas of our life first corinthians 10 31 whether you eat or drink do all to the glory of god there's no realm that this won't touch so i'm telling you in all of those realms we just listed Inherently, they're not bad, but you need to figure out deliberate ways with 
those things that, hey, this is how I'm using this to glorify God, okay? A great example, uh, you spend time doing a hobby, playing a sort of sport, you utilize that time to get to know unbelievers and share the gospel with them. Now you have used two things, a, a means in the culture that everyone likes to do to give you a platform now to speak the gospel which glorifies God. Or say, you know, a big house, okay? In and of itself could be an idol, but what if you say, I'm buying this big house and uh, we are gonna have every Thrive get-together in our group at our house because we want people to come over and use this because it's not ours, it's God's. This house is God's house, not our house. There's, there's gotta be ways that you deliberately choose to worship God in these things. I will make a statement that will seem controversial, but really, trust me, it is, there's no doubt in my mind that this is true. I think it's even scientifically proven. Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback in NFL history. It's just the truth. There's, there's no one better, okay? He's just great. I know we got Joe Montana fans out there. Oh, he was so good. Uh, my grandma could have Jerry Rice as a receiver and play very, very well, okay? What Tom Brady's working with right now is not you know, Jerry Rice material, okay? Tom Brady's just the greatest quarterback. Let's just say we all agree with that. Um, we got a con convert down here in the front row. Uh, Tom Brady was interviewed, uh, and I respect him because of what he does off the field to make himself ready for football games. Listen to this. Uh, one of his teammates was asked, hey, why do you think Tom Brady played so bad uh, during some Monday night game? And uh, they go, well, because it's way past his bedtime. Tom Brady goes to bed at 8.30 p.m. at night. Okay, he's a 37-year-old man going to bed earlier than my 74-year-old grandmother, okay? He goes to bed at 8.30 at night. Then when they asked him about it, he said, yeah, that's absolutely true. Listen to the statement. I do go to bed very early because I'm up very early. And I think that decision that I make always centers around my performance, if that makes sense. So whether it's what I eat or the decisions I make or whether I drink or don't drink, listen to this phrase, it's always football-centric. That's a key phrase right there. Tom Brady makes deliberate choices because he wants to be the best. And he is, right? We already agreed on that. He wants to be the best. And so he makes these choices based on a football-centric worldview, okay? Now that should be said of every Christian take the football out of it, and put Christocentric view. I do this because Christ wants me to do it. I spend this money here because Christ would want me to do that. I share the gospel with people at work because that's what Christ wants me to do. I go to bed early on Saturday nights because Christ would want me to be prepared for Sunday morning worship. I do these things because Christ wants me to do them. And yet way too many people in here, I don't know if the decisions you make, you can tie them to those things. If you can't, what are they tied to? Oh, well, I, I can't serve at church on this weekend because I'm devoted to this, this, and this extracurricular activity. Well, then your schedule and other people's opinion of what you do outside is driving what you do. It's got to be a Christocentric thing. I do these things to serve so I can have an opportunity to share the gospel, and here's how I do it. Okay, now I can see. I make this decision not to hang out with these people after work because after I've shared the gospel with them, all they want to do is go to strip clubs. Okay, you made the right choice because Christ is the center of your life. Tom Brady is good at what he does. You can be an excellent Christian if you make these deliberate choices to keep yourselves 
from idols and choose to do the Christocentric thing. And you just got to find out what that is. Since I'm already saying controversial things, I think Ford makes the best cars, okay? Anybody else out there agree with me? If we got a few, yeah, Ford, I got a Taurus right now, and I'm going to rock that thing until 250,000 miles, okay? And I think it'll last. I love Ford, okay? I love Ford. I'm a Detroit boy. Uh, and we had uh, Henry Ford, right? Henry Ford created the Model T, great cars back in the day. I think great cars current to the day. Apparently, that is not the consensus in the room, uh, but I'm the one with the mic, so that's all that matters. Uh, Henry Ford <laughs> makes great cars. The reason why his uh, business did so well, though, is because they created a production line. And they were able to not just have people all working on one car at the same time, people were assigned different jobs and they could create basically the same car over and over again because of this production line. The way that they had set everything up. You've got this, this job, you put this on here, let it go down to the next one. And mass produce so many of the same cars that are of good quality that that's what really revolutionized his business. The church could take a page out of that and say, we are producing Christ-like people. And every one of us, when we come to church, has a job to do that. And we want to mass produce the same character in every single person so that when we go out, we image Jesus Christ to the world. That can only happen if we do what John tells us to do. Keep ourselves from idols and focus on Jesus Christ. If you don't do that in your marriage and you worship your marriage, that will be the most important thing to you. If you put your kids as the most important thing, that cannot happen. But to make Jesus Christ the ultimate goal and what you are being conformed to, Romans 8, 29, we're all conformed to the image of Christ. Then that will glorify God and that will get a lot of work done here on earth. So let's take the truths that John has taught us and not just leave them because we're not studying him next year, but let's apply them each and every day so we mass produce Christ-likeness in this room and do great things for his honor and glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the straightforwardness of John and forgive us when we do not keep ourselves from idols. God, we, they're all over the place. There's so many physical things that can take our place, but like Ezekiel said, people set up idols in their hearts every day. So Father, would you please help us to avoid that, watch that, realize that what we worship really matters. And as we do that, Father, may we give you honor and glory by getting rid of false worship and devoting ourselves to true worship. And as we do that, God, Please conform us into the image of your Son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.